Here we are. Our passage comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and he was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but it is But if it loses its saltiness, how could it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Especially around Christmas time, when we think of the incarnation, that is God becoming man, We speculate about what Jesus was really like. I mean, beyond the Gospels, right? Things we don't know that are not recorded. Uh, Could he do this? Was he like that? What is his relationship with different people? And, And frequently, we probably err on the side of thinking that Jesus could do anything. Now, you say, what kind of heresy are you starting out with? No, really. I, I don't think Jesus would have been good at everything. For instance, I think he would have been a lousy politician. Really, based on the standards of modern-day politics, he wouldn't have done such a good job. As a matter of fact, preceding this passage that we just read in Luke chapter 14, you see a whole litany of things where Jesus tells people how hard it's going to be to follow him. Now, preceding chapter 14, what is happening in the life of Jesus is the crowds are growing. They're getting bigger and bigger. They're getting huge. It looks like he can do anything he wants and people are calling for him to be king. If you were his campaign manager, it would be a nightmare. You know why? Because a campaign manager, when you're at the crest of the wave like that, would have advised Jesus, the potential politician, look... We've got them where we want them. They're following us. They're flocking to us, thronging to us. Keep it simple, Jesus. Don't get too complicated. Make it easy. We can do this thing. And Jesus' response to this fictional campaign manager is this. Well, folks, if you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. Real hard. So hard as a matter of fact that you got to hate everything you now love and just love me. So hard as a matter of fact you've got to sacrifice everything for me. 
even your life. Now, I ask you, would a politician win with that kind of message? Probably not. Oh, yeah, they might hold a high bar, but not this kind of language. It's almost as though Jesus was trying to torpedo his own success. It's like he was saying, there's too many people. There's too many people following me, and they don't have a clue what it means, so I'm going to be honest and bold with them and tell them what it means. So he begins in this passage by saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to be radical. You've got to be a radical disciple. You've got to hate your mother and your father and your sister and your brother and all friends and family. Hate them so you can love me. Now, honestly, folks, most of us wouldn't take these words of Jesus literally, would we? No, we wouldn't. We also wouldn't take some other words of Jesus literally. Like when he says, if you want to get into the kingdom of God and you find out that your eye is offending you or your arm or your hand is offending you, pluck it out, cut it off. There'd be a lot of one-armed people around here if we did that, right? I mean, I'd be the one-armed, one-eyed preacher. I'm just saying right now, if I followed the advice literally. I don't think Jesus was actually asking me to cut off my arm. I also don't think he was asking me to hate my mother. I spent a lot of time moving my mother to Bloomington and caring for her needs as a widow. Is Jesus really telling me I got to hate her in order to love him? No, it's a matter of comparison. It's a contrast that Jesus is painting. He's basically saying, love for me, pure devotion as my disciple means that everything else has to take second best. Or to speak into the particular culture that he was speaking to, at that time, he was basically warning them of what it was about to come. He was essentially saying, you know what it's going to mean if you follow me? You're probably going to be denounced by some of your friends. Some of your family is going to absolutely turn their back on you, not just figuratively, but physically. You're going to be disowned by a lot of people. And if that's true, you have to make a decision. Are you going to love them more than me? Are you going to go with them? Are you going to follow me? He put it in other ways along the way. When he called people to the cross of discipleship, he basically said, if you're going to follow me, you've got to make a choice. Not only it may be making a choice to leave your family or them making a choice to leave you. To follow me may mean that you don't have any house. But not for everybody, but to follow me, disciples, it might mean you're a vagabond. To follow me, it might mean that you have little or no money. You just go day to day. To follow me, disciples, it might mean, actually, inevitably, it did mean for them the loss of your own life. Jesus says to be a disciple is a radical activity. Follow me. Everything has to take second place. Also, Jesus said to follow me is not only just to be radical. To follow me is to be radical, but it's to be ironically reasonable too. 
we don't often associate those two words together. It's either radical, which is often irrational, or it's reasonable, which is very careful. Jesus says, you've got to be radical to follow me. I have to come first over everything, and then I want you to be reasonable. And here's how I want you to be reasonable. I want you to count the cost. That's where the image comes in of the builder and the king. He says, don't be foolish. Don't say you're going to follow me. Don't claim to be radical before you count the cost. A builder wouldn't build before he knew whether or not he could finish the project. A king, who happens to be in a position of protecting his subjects, wouldn't go to war with another king who had twice the amount of armament and men that he did and inevitably fail because the outcome would be terrible for his people. They probably would be killed or burned or put into slavery. So that king counts the cost and evaluates things and goes out and says, can we come to a peace agreement? Might not be my first choice, but it's better than slaughter. So Jesus says, I want you to be radical, but I also want you to be reasonable. I want you to count the cost. I don't want you just to say to me, I'm going to follow you. And the words have no meaning. I want you to say to me, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to count the cost. I'm going to be reasonable about what it takes. On one occasion, a scribe came to Jesus, a rather prominent fellow, and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, here, let me tell you something. It's time for you to count the cost. Don't just say that. Here's the reality. The foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, that's me, doesn't have a place to lay his head. I don't have a home. Following me means we're on the road all the time. And we borrow everything. On another occasion, Jesus described following him and said, you need to count the cost because if you don't follow me completely, you're not even worthy of starting it. He used the image of a person who was plowing a field. And he said, you look ahead and you see the row and you see the plow and you see the soil and you put your hand on the plow. And if you take your hand off the plow and look back, you're not even worthy of me. So count the cost. I want you to understand what it means. I want you to be radical, I want you to be reasonable, and I want you to count the cost. And he says, in effect, follow me means giving up everything. In his words on another occasion in Luke chapter 9, this same gospel, he says, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever wants to lose his life must save it. In other words, give your life away and I'll give you a new life. But you've got to give your life away. Jesus requires absolute allegiance. allegiance. Everything, he says, belongs to me. And he demands, if you're going to be a disciple, that you prioritize your life around him. One final thing about discipleship, according to Jesus, we've already mentioned it, but let's put it in very specific terms. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily. And follow me. I'm not sure the disciples at that juncture or even right up to the crucifixion ever understood that Jesus was predicting on several occasions his own death on the cross. But I am confident that they understood this image. When he said to follow me means you need to take up your cross and follow me, they got the image. Because all around Rome, it happened. People took up their cross. And then they were crucified on it. 
Of course, Jesus' taking of His cross and His own crucifixion hadn't happened yet. But these foreboding words symbolized that future for Him and that future for them. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to daily pick up your cross and follow me. So here's the question. Point of application. What does it look like for us today? It's different. Let's acknowledge that it is different. But what would it look like for us today to surrender everything to Jesus? What would that look like for you? What kind of modification of your life and mine would we have to make? By the way, this series is one of three on what we will broadly call stewardship. In this one, I primarily focus on time. Uh, Next week, I'll talk about talent. And the third week, I'll talk about treasure. It seems an appropriate way to begin the year, to reset ourselves, to understand what it means to follow Jesus completely. But what would it look like to surrender everything to Jesus? Uh, First thing, uh, it seems, is that to surrender everything to Jesus would mean that every part of our day would be an offering to him. Not just episodes, but the day itself. Not just parts of our job and parts of our family and parts of our money, but all of it as an offering to him. I realized just the other day that I've been here for 16 and a half years. That's a long time. And in 16 and a half years, I have uh, talked and preached to and counseled with a lot of college students over the years. And you you begin to realize there's certain trends, right, that come through, certain questions that you can anticipate, certain angst that's a part of the life of a college student. And frequently one of the questions that comes up is, what am I supposed to do with my life, right? Just like sweaty palms, quivering lip, what am I supposed to do? What what does God want me to do with my life? I want to be... And and a lot of times it comes following a sermon like this. I want to be fully devoted to God. So what should I do? I think I ought to go into full-time ministry. And I usually just jump out of my seat and say, no, 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 don't do it. No, I I don't get that radical. I kind of want to sometimes, but you know why? Not because full-time ministry is not a blessing, it is. But because a lot of times, coming out of a passionate desire to follow Christ, people think that full-time ministry is real devotion to Jesus. And while I would like to think I'm devoted to Jesus, I am absolutely convinced that there are folks right here that I'm talking to that are as fully, if not more fully devoted to Jesus, that are not in vocational ministry. You're not. You're doing an entirely different kind of job. And you've been called to that. And that's the way you're supposed to follow Jesus. So up front, I want to say stop. Don't think that's the only way to be fully devoted to Christ. And then sometimes I say, if you think you want to be in ministry like me, here's my advice. Do it if it's your last option. If you're actually in a corner and your back's to the wall and God gives you no other options, then do it. But don't do it any other way. Now that is a statement by me that I want people to count the cost. Not because it's so horrible. I have a wonderful life. But because I don't want to see one person 
think that they are now really a disciple of Jesus Christ because they are in full-time ministry. And I don't want them to walk in under false pretense that that makes them a better disciple. So what do I want to say? I want to say to you and to me and to everyone, your life is a vocation. Every part of it. Even if it's not what you would call full-time ministry. Your life is a vocation. Not a job, but a vocation. A calling in this present world. It's a calling that Jesus has given you. Take your life, every part of it, and make it a calling. You know, if you, if you were able to do that fully, do you realize what would happen? What would happen is that you would realize that every part of your day was sacred and offering to God. Even the so-called boring parts. Even the so-called secular parts. We can debate this, and, and friends of mine have debated it, but I just don't think there is any such thing as a secular life for a Christian. It might be a non-vocational ministry life, but your life is sacred, every part of it. So give it to God that way. This day, this life, this job, God is my offering to you. Second thing I think it would look like if we really surrendered our life to God, not only would we see our, our life as a vocation, but I think we might actually reserve portions of our day or a week exclusively for God. There could be many, many ways that you could describe this exclusive devotion to God. So I won't go into all the details there. But when I get to um, the third part of this series on, on money, the word tithing is going to emerge, right? Inevitably. And more often than not, when people think of tithing, they think of some 10% kind of thing, right? That's the Old Testament. And then you have the argument about whether or not 10% is the New Testament. I'm not going to get into that. It's not important, at least not right now. Except to say this. Suppose, just suppose for a moment, that we took the principle of tithing. Call it a 10%. I don't do math very well and I messed this up in the first service, but I got it right this time. Call it 10% for purposes of ease. What would it look like if you devoted exclusively 10% of your day to Jesus. It would be two hours and 24 minutes, I think, of fully devoted time to Jesus. What would that look like? I don't know. I never asked the question. That's why I'm asking it now. If we're really going to follow God, really going to follow Jesus, can't we do something like that? I think we can. Third question related to following Jesus completely as a disciple is this. What would it look like if your day 
was entirely prioritized around and about Jesus. I'm not talking about numbers now or time. I'm just thinking priority. In uh, 1981, June 12th, I almost missed that date in the first service, but I got it. I remembered. I got married. June 12th, 1981. Now, actually, long before that date, I became really devoted to a, a beautiful woman. But on that date, in, in this marriage covenant, it became clear to me and to her and to everybody who knew us that my life was now not my own. Um, and I just got less of it every year. <laughs> no, my life was not my own. And my priorities circled around my wife in a new kind of way. Right? Every, every part of my life somehow circled around her. I mean... There were times when I was younger, even before we got married, I pro- oh, that's awful. I gotta be honest. I probably thought of her more then than I do now, right? It just happens. You, you don't do it like you used to sometimes. That's probably not a good thing. But I can remember when I was dating her, I couldn't think about anything else. Everything was about her. When I got married, I realized that this covenant was all about her and that everything should or did circle around her. And then, in 1987, a little boy came into the world whose name is David. And I had another thing to prioritize my life around. Now my life circled around her and him, our son. And in 1989, a little girl came into the world. And now my life circled around him and her and her. And it still does to a certain extent. I couldn't understand life anymore. Without thinking of them. I couldn't make decisions anymore without somehow them being a part of it. I had a new set of priorities. It's easy, I think, for us to give lip service to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And for that not to be really true. That He, like my family is the priority around which I circle. The way I order my life. What it would look like if we surrendered everything to Jesus, maybe our vocation would be redefined. Maybe the hours of our day would change. Maybe our priorities would change completely. Here's the suggestion. Take an inventory. This is all you. It's all your work. Take an inventory of your time. It's not as hard as you think. Take an inventory. And what I think you'll find is that in some areas of your life, you will find balance. And in other areas of your life, you're going to find terrible imbalance. And in most cases, I think you're going to walk away saying to yourself, if you're anything like me, I'm unbalanced as it relates to devotion to Jesus Christ. So, do the inventory, look at your life, and then here's the second part. Ask yourself this question. 
Is that the way I want it to be? See, this is, this is not something anybody's imposing on you. You're doing this for yourself. Ask yourself a question. Is that the way I want it to be? Well, if the answer is no, then probably you're going to want to move to the next part, which is to change it. But instead of just rushing to that, think about it this way as a, another question. If you don't want it to be that way anymore, decide what you're willing to reprioritize. Figure it out. Just say, these things have got to change. This time has to change. And then finally, determine some very specific steps to take in that direction. And I guarantee you, you're going to fail. Okay? What an encouraging word from Pastor Bob. Set up this inventory and you're going to blow it. Right? You you are going to fail because we're human. But if you do this prioritizing and then set up some steps to achieve a change of priorities in your life, it'll be gigantic. If you really do it, it'll be gigantic. And then, here's the final thing. Set up a system to keep yourself accountable. Okay, I'm not being legalistic here. It might sound like it, but I don't mean it that way, right? I don't. Really, I don't. You know, we talk about uh, systems and setting things up and being disciplined and, and all that kind of stuff. And when we talk about that in relationship to religion, to faith, one of the first things we're charged with is legalism. But nobody charges you with legalism when you set up priorities and try to stay to them when it comes to, let's say, your job or your marriage or your money. So why not, in a non-legalistic way, just say, here's my inventory, here's what I want to do, now I'm going to set up a system to ask whether or not I've achieved those objectives to hold myself accountable. It's as simple as a yes or a no. You set the system. It can be done. So my final illustration is this. It's sort of a comment and an illustration. Um, for far more than 20 years now, I've been involved in, in small groups with people, um, mostly men's groups. And um, inevitably, in those groups, when we're studying discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, we, we come upon this question. And the question is, is basically this. This is just one thing, right? Don't, don't hear the sermon as as only one thing. It's just an illustration. We come up with this question, this question that goes something like this. How much of my time do I spend in my devotions? My private time with God. Make that as broad as you want to, but you know what I mean. Okay. Routinely, we come up with that question. And then, routinely, when we challenge ourselves, to think about what needs to change. We say something like this. I'm, I'm just admitting my honesty and the honesty of people I've been around for years. It seems like a good idea, but I just don't have the time for it. Here's my very simple comment for you 
and for me. And if you don't think of anything else from the sermon, I want you to think of this. Here's a fact of life. We do what we want to do. And if we think it's important, we make time for it. That's just a reality. If I think it's more important to work 90 hours a week so that my kids can have a lot of stuff and not be with my kids, I choose work. If I think that my kids need me and so I'm not going to spend time 90 hours a week working, I'm going to be with them and talk with them, then I choose that. If I think it's important to block out a certain amount of time every day to spend privately with Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, then I will do it. And what I do, I hate saying this because it's so true and it, 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 it gets me right where I am. But what I do is a measure of what I believe and what I care about. It, it just is. If you don't spend any personal devotional time with Jesus Christ, you can say all you want about how important you think it is, but it's not important to you because you don't do it. So, as you walk away from here, ask the question, not just about that, but about everything. What are my priorities? What do I count important? And then set aside time for it. By the way, about the so-called devotional life, it's a lot simpler than you think. Um, make a choice. Make it 10 minutes if you don't have anything. I guarantee you, you can find 10 minutes. You say, Bob, you don't know how, life, how busy my life is. I don't care how busy your life is. Everybody's life is busy. You can find 10 minutes. I don't care who you are or where you are. You can find 10 minutes. You go to the bathroom, don't you? You eat, right? Try multitasking if that's necessary. But you can find 10 minutes. You can. It might mean just getting up 10 minutes earlier. Or going to bed 10 minutes later. But you can do that. Um, over the last few years, I... I shared it in the second first service and I almost hesitated to do that here because it seems like it's some kind of, I don't know, claim or brag or something, but I don't mean it that way. Over the last couple of years, I've tried to um, haltingly with some success and a lot of times not create a new pattern uh, in my life for what I'll just call my devotional life which is part of a rich Christian tradition, but not just a Christian tradition, lots of religions. Um, and that is to pause three times a day. I, I, don't, I don't even want to talk about time. I'm just talking about pausing three times a day. Stopping three times a day. And being in the presence of God. You can do that. And I've done it, sometimes better than others. But you know what I notice when I do it? 
Everything about my life circles around God in a different kind of way. Doesn't make me perfect. I don't know that I'm a bit better. But I think it's what I'm called to. It helps me to think. It helps me to reprioritize. It helps me at least to make a step towards a new kind of discipleship. So, do your inventory. Ask your questions. Keep yourself accountable and see what happens. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word um, and the challenges of your word, especially the challenge of Jesus. Um, man, it just seems like you, you give us impossible commands. Call them demands. You entice us with love and then you say, okay, now let me tell you what it means. And we say to ourselves, well, we can't do that. Or we say to ourselves, we've tried and we failed. And that's why you're so amazing. Because the high bar you call us to is augmented by a thing called grace. And it makes no difference how many times we fail. You reach down with loving hands full of grace and mercy and forgiveness and you lift us up. And you say, let's, let's walk together again by faith. So Lord, with that kind of grace, we can't fail. <laughs> it's a high bar, but our success is foolproof. All we have to do is be willing. All we've got to do is love you. Fall down and get up and follow again. So we pray, Lord, you'll give us the grace to do that. And give us the grace uh, to accept your forgiveness when we fail. Because that's a really big part of it. It's one thing to say we know that you forgive. It's another thing to receive it. So help us to receive your forgiveness and then walk in the light of your grace. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. We please stand.